0: So, we continue, and today we come to chapter 2, and there's some things that we need to keep in mind. So, I've got a few introductory comments as we dive in. Firstly, our story begins in a context where faith in Yahweh, the true God, the Lord God of Israel and Judah, has hit an all-time low. It's not that people, uh, you know, didn't believe stuff. People in Babylon, believed a whole lot of stuff that took giant leaps of faith to believe. They just didn't believe in God. They believed a whole lot of nonsense. They believed the stars were sovereign. They determined your whole thing. And, you know, they studied the stars to try and understand human pathways, human future, to, you know, have, they believed a whole lot of stuff. So it wasn't that faith was low. It was that faith in the true God was very low, and uh, it, it matters because the general thinking was that Babylon's gods must be much better, and, and that was because if you're winning on earth, you're assuming that my ideas are right and other people's ideas are wrong, and Babylon had obviously won the latest battle, And so everyone was thinking, our Babylonian Chaldean gods are obviously much better than Judah's God. And even the people of Judah themselves were tempted to go, well, why did we lose? Now, we looked at the fact that God warned them they would lose. But the general idea was that God couldn't be much of a God if he couldn't guarantee the victory and the conquest and the safety and the prosperity of his people. So, because people had these muddled ideas about the job description of God, not that He uphold righteousness, but that He make humans successful and prosperous, then they got very muddled about who is God. Does that make sense? Number two, we are now starting to dip our toes into quite a complicated form of biblical literature called apocalyptic uh, writing. And, you know, we've we've heard of Apocalypse Now and all that. It's kind of of end-of-the-world scenario, and that's exactly what this does deal with. So, you know, the movies have stolen the word from the biblical uh, metaphors. And it's very important because it's visually graphic and highly symbolic. So, if someone says to you, I interpret the Bible literally... You can be guaranteed they're going to get it wrong when it comes to apocalyptic literature, okay? This is not literal stuff. You've got to get underneath the skin of these signs and these images and these, you know, statues and beasts and pimples and horns and who knows what else you're going to face when you come inside this literature, and if you miss the meaning, then you cannot find its application. So we don't want to do that. And then early in our reading this morning, in halfway through the verse, actually, in verse 4, we switch from reading in the Hebrew to suddenly in the Aramaic. And so the king says, I want you to tell me what my dream means. And then his enchanters and Chaldeans and soothsayers and everything reply to him, and from that moment, their reply, and the text for another six chapters, is in Aramaic, Imperial Aramaic, which was actually quite common. It was actually even the language, Jesus' home language, 300 years later. So it spread from Persia right through Syria down into the top of Palestine. And, of course, it, you know, it was a language that uh, competed then with Greek and Latin and that kind of thing. But it, it was a very, very dominant uh, language grouping and remarkably showed very little change. You know, the queen's English supposedly doesn't change, except when the king's English comes along. Then, uh, you know, we play catch up. This, this language is remarkably stable. Um, now, the Aramaic also, now bear with me. Uh, this is so exciting for Bible scholars and hopefully for you as well. Okay, so what is inside the book of Daniel is that this Aramaic section. So remember, we've had chapter one in Hebrew, then most of chapter two, three, four, five, it's six and seven. Now, the book of Daniel seems to be divided in half. And the division happens, if you're just reading in English or Afrikaans or Swahili, your division happens at the end of chapter 6. You move from these amazing Daniel stories to suddenly watching, you know, adult-rated, sort of like apocalyptic stuff, you know, and you're not quite sure what to make of it. The book of Daniel, when you understand the languages, is not divided like that. And so you don't have an exciting first part and then a confusing second part, you actually have a bridge, which is, I just want to kind of show you, and it's called the chiastic structure, okay, and that's how poetry works in a lot of Hebrew and Aramaic poetry, and, and basically, it's, it's the use of couplets or pairs, and, you know, proverbs will be like couplets, sometimes they contain a contrast, sometimes they contain an expansion, sometimes they contain just a the same idea repeated with a little bit more punch. And so they use these couplets, but when you start adding more lines, what you start getting is a structure in which A equals D and B and C correspond. So, you know, you start jumping, and the more lines you add, like the Lord's Prayer, if you understand which parts were there in the original, which parts were added from David's prayer, You've got a perfect chiastic structure of nine lines in which the punchline is, believe it or not, in God's kingdom, give everyone today their daily bread. Imagine a world in which no one goes hungry. What would that take? And that's how you understand. So let me unpack this a little bit. So in chapter 2, we have four human empires or kingdoms, spoiler alert, that will be overthrown by a kingdom of divine origin and power. Chapter 3... Faithful believing opposition to human kingdoms invites God deliverance from fire. Spoiler alert for next week. Then chapter three and four, we find two kings being confronted by God and they get humbled. Then we find mirroring chapter three in chapter six. Again, faithful refusal to worship a human king. And this time they're not delivered from fire but from the lions. And then we find four empires or kingdoms or beasts that are overthrown by God's kingdom. And they will be ultimately ruled by one who is like the Son of Man. Now, you cannot understand chapter 2 without keeping chapter 7 in mind. Once you see this structure, it's like boom, boom, boom. And this structure will help you then interpret the Hebrew sections of the book. Are you excited? It gets really great. any case, I'm going to have to like lean into, and I mean, there's like 50 verses in the chapter, so I'm going to just talk us through the story rather than read it and then preach the story again. The story is so cool, so uh, hang in there. But in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams. He's pretty certain they're bad dreams, filled with omens, and again, dream interpretation the Chaldeans had, or Babylonians, had these dream interpretation manuals. We've even found them. We've got records of what they are today, and they're long and detailed and very technical, and it was a terrible thing not to remember a dream. We're pretty certain Nebuchadnezzar did remember his dream. He hadn't forgotten it. He just wasn't. He knew these guys had all their recipe books to interpret the dreams, and he felt This dream is far too important to tell them the dream because they're just going to go to their recipe books and tell me their usual mumbo-jumbo. So he's thinking to himself, this dream has given me sleepless nights again and again and again. How do I not put up with their normal mumbo-jumbo? They need to tell me the dream. If they can tell me the dream, then I know they can interpret the dream. So, dreams were like huge currency in Babylon, make no mistake. And the king himself has doubts about his own system of wisdom. So, he says, I need another layer of evidence. Tell me the dream. And the astrologers and all of them answer the king, and this is where the language switches to the Aramaic, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. And he says, listen, if you don't tell me my dream and interpret it, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb and your houses, you know, torn down into rubble. Lovely king, this this kingdom of love and grace and everything like that. But Incentive, so that was the stick. Here comes the carrot. If you can do this, then I will give you reward upon reward. You'll be the richest and most powerful person under me in the kingdom, basically. And once more, they replied, oh, King, please tell us your dream. We've got the manuals. We can do this." And uh, he says, "I know you're just playing for time." And they go, "There's no one who can do what the king asks." They whimper, and he says to Arioch, his uh, He's chief commander of the palace guard. Okay, just cut a lot of them down. They're completely useless to me. So, he heads off, and uh, the commander, that is. And, uh, but, but some of the wise men are not the sorcerers and the soothsayers, but they're still included in the category of the wise men, and that includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, They suddenly are confronted by a military escort taking them to the gallows. And Daniel tactfully says, uh, just hold your horses, what the heck is this? And he discovers what has played out. And remember, Daniel's still pretty young, and you didn't just do this, but it says Daniel went to the king and asked for time. And then made a commitment. Made a commitment, he said, I'll interpret it. I just need time. And it'll explain why he needs time. But the moment he walks out, gets on the phone to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says to them, Guys, you need to start praying. Now is the time. Okay. This is obviously like completely impossible. Isn't it great when you're faced with something that is completely impossible? Not really when your life is on the line nothing to help your prayer life like a terminal threat, you know. And in any case, they begin to pray. I don't know how much time they had, but literally during the night. It says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Do we still know how to get visions? Have, have, Have we learned to train our spirit to Get beyond the place where we're in control of the content of everything we're thinking. Do do we know? We've been so influenced by our culture that, you know, we literally have to control every thought inside our brain. If you have to do that, you'll never get what Daniel got in this moment. He had learned in the prayer and in his time with God. And so, in the night, you could interpret it, he received in the night a vision, or he received a vision of the night. It wasn't a dream, the, the, the text has a language for the word dream. It's clearly a spiritual encounter it comes to him as Daniel and his friends are praying through the night. And so he goes, God, you're great. <laughs> oh, Oh, if only people would praise your name nonstop, because wisdom and power are his. He changes times, seasons, deposes kings, raises others, gives wisdom to the wise. He's the one who gives knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep, hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, because light dwells in him. And, uh, And then he says, oh God, I thank you, praise you. You've made known to me the dream of the king. I think I'd lost my way with my notes. Okay, that's just pointing out the parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 7. So now we pick up and I'm going to do the actual reading. So that's like the cool back story. The story continues, but let's continue in the reading. So the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to interpret, uh, to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. In other words, your dream manuals are useless. But, sermon title, there is a God in heaven. I don't know what you're facing. Daniel faces it with these words, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And some of you are thinking, and he loves me. Um, And he reveals mysteries. He's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the last days. And Most of us have got the days to come. There's an actual phrase there that talks about the end days. It's not just what will happen any day. But what will happen between now and the end? What'll happen between now and the end? And and the idea of this last day is, gets picked up from this passage and carried much further. Your dreams and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. I think Daniel by that stage had so committed he probably wasn't even like but I mean the tension is just like doo-doo, doo-doo. but but he knows what he's seen I mean this is such a brilliantly written story I love it sorry I'm getting here. your majesty was lying there and your mind turned to things to come you may not even known it and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and you may understand what went through your mind. Um, Often, I wish I could do the same, understand what's going on in my own mind. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. Sorry. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Doo-doo, doo-doo. This was your dream. Now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty. You are small k, not capital. You are king of kings. But as I tell you that, sorry, pressed the wrong button. The God of heaven. Remember, there is a God in heaven. Now, interesting, this title, the God of heaven, in heaven, the God of heaven, hadn't really been in use before the exile, because he was always the God of the temple, he was the God of Zion, he was the God of the Exodus, he was the God who defeated, and now they have to work out in this place where faith in God is at all time low, what is God like here, in this place, where it's difficult to sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? And how do we communicate this God to the people who believe that God is to be found in the stars and in the signs and in the symbols and in the seasons and all the rest of it? He says there's a God who's over all of this. There's a God who's bigger than anything you've got. And so they begin to use, in Daniel's time, in the exile, this description, the God of heaven. And it's clearly referencing Yahweh, the Lord of Israel and Judah. This God has given you dominion and power and might and glory. It sounds as though we're in Psalm eight, and sounds like though we're in Genesis chapter one in your hands, He's placed all mankind, the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. This is what dominion looks like. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. I jumped ahead. Where did I go? Sorry, a little overperforming instrument there. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, even as you saw. Sorry, uh, and, and so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay. Now, baked clay is, could be anything, like beautiful pottery, could be china. It's all made of clay. Now it's, it's unlikely to be crude. Remember, the statue is dazzling. It's magnificent. So it's like the toenails are painted, you know. It's like pretty, but it's mingled and weak. And just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And so, as the toes were partly of iron, partly of clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture, not remain unminded any more than iron can mix with clay. In those times... In those times, gosh, now we're getting quite deep into some of the later chapters, some of these ideas. These ideas are now being introduced now, and they're going to help us a little bit later as we go through the book. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms, bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, all to pieces. The great God. The great God. Like, there's one. He has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. The interpretation is trustworthy. Do-do, do-do, do-do. <laughs> I'm sure he could read Nebuchadnezzar's face while he was talking. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Now, this could be very awkward, okay? And, and this little scene is actually one of the reasons why we don't believe the late dating of the book. Uh, the book. Um, there's a belief that Daniel was written after the fact, after all the kingdoms had come, and someone sat down and wrote the history after the fact. And the time of after the fact was in about 165 B.C. during the Maccabean kingdom and revolt against the Seleucid Empire of the Greeks. And the belief was that, the, you know, there was a guy called, and he is a prototype, Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and he was, you know, causing mayhem in Jerusalem. And this Daniel was written as a book of resistance using a historical figure to come against an existing figure. So, it's like a novel written, so it's not historical. There were no miracles. Uh, It's it's not a real book. If you do a lot of, you know, you go pick up, open the internet, you'll find so much dodgy stuff on Daniel, um, including that, for example, the toenails of the British Empire and that America's part of the bum, and, you know, who knows what all in the statue, you know. That's, it's not, it's not there, I promise you. But equally, you'll find so-called in academic thought that what we have is this fictional account in which Antiochus Epiphanes is this terrible person who was coming to insist on human offerings and that kind of thing. Now, there's so many things that Daniel did that was completely unacceptable to the Maccabeans, which was the Jewish response to Antiochus Epiphanes. And so why would you write a book that, in the, for example, in the Maccabean period, people did not cooperate with the king. And they would uh, Antiochus Epiphanes wanted sacrifices made to himself. And in fact, he went into the temple and offered a pig on the altar of Israel. Daniel, If Daniel is a historical, fictional character, he would never have permitted to happen what happened then. Daniel receives an offering. Now, we know that often pagan people mistake God's people for God. Daniel must have just had to stand there and say, God, this is all for you. God, this is all for you. God, this is all for you. But there's no ways that this would have been included in the story if this was fiction. You understand? And I can point out many, many other instances where the argument that this is written, you know, after the fact, and we've created this like historical novel to create a hero, invented miracles, but essentially the book has just got... Nothing to do other than an historical curiosity, no. There are too many instances in which the credibility and the unity of the book speak for itself as speaking to Babylon and not to Jerusalem in 165. Enough of the debate. Happy to take it further if you want to, but uh, it's important to say because a whole lot of people just treat the book as if it's fairy tales with a moral of the story. And then they can't explain multiple elements in the story that have no moral for the fairy tale. So Daniel gets this incense. And the king said to Daniel, at least he got this right. Surely your God is the God of gods. Love this title. The Lord of kings. Your God is the Lord of kings a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king kept his promise, placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him, made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon. Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So that's just the introduction. (laughs) And now we move to the conclusion, okay? I don't know how to preach a sermon out of this. There's just so much content. So that was the introduction. Now we go to the conclusion. The sermon is, there is a God in heaven. Daniel puts his faith to the test. And he is convinced that God even wants this pagan king to know there's a God in heaven. How do we relate to the pagan authority figures over us? Do we want them to know that there's a God in heaven who holds their lives in his hands? You know, and as we read this, we get confronted by the same reality of Daniel's story. Nebuchadnezzar demands a miracle. We've seen he probably had reason for it. And extraordinarily through Daniel. God grants the king his demand. And Daniel comes in, he isn't presumptuous, he's tactful, he's strategic, and he draws on the support of his close friends and is utterly dependent upon God. Remember we said he didn't just run away. He engaged even in that environment. It's called faith. Faith. When you're in an environment where faith is at an all-time low, don't join the low. We're not looking for the lowest common denominator in in where we move. We're we're looking to add, as it were, to the environment and, and call other people up. And Daniel then tells both dream and interpretation to the king and literally blows the king away. The king's prostrate in front of Daniel, like blown away. And in the king's own words, we have the God of gods, the Lord of kings, a revealer of mystery. Now, the danger of Daniel is that we can get so caught up in these amazing stories. And this is such a well-written book. I mean, who of us don't remember the Daniel stories from when we were pickies, you know? And, and they are awesome, and they meant to show us what faith looks like in a hostile world. But the miracles authenticate a message, and we can get so caught up in the miracle stories, we miss the message that is being authenticated. You know, there's this double, this is a hostile witness environment that Daniel introduces, as it were. And, and you know that in a court of law, when a hostile witness corroborates your evidence, then, you, then, you, then the judge is going to go, this is a strong case. I want to tell you, this is a strong case to the message behind the miracle. Because it wasn't just a miracle, it was a clear message. This is a strong case for the story of the God who governs history. God comes to the most successful and powerful person of the day and warns them that what they are building is not going to last. Like you are that head of gold, and it will become dust and ashes and blow to the four winds. He shows him, in fact, not just that his kingdom won't last, but that all human empires are doomed. When we build our babels, whatever the tower is to, so that we can take the place of God in the world, it cannot last. It's tainted by our mortal spirit. We impart death to the very things we grow. In James chapter. Uh, 6, James chapter 5, he says that, you know, God is not mocked. When we sow in the flesh, in our mortal flesh, it brings death. These empires have been sown in the flesh. They've got nothing to do with the heart and spirit of Jesus. And so they cannot carry life. No business empire, no political dynasty, no social enterprise, No sporting team, Manchester whatever. These empires express power from a complex web of military power conquest, political alliance and intrigue, economic opportunity, use of new technologies, social engineering that reads the mood of the day, there's a truckload of reasons why human empires rise. and a very short list of why they fall, pride. And what is dazzling and beautiful and awesome in the moment of his day will not last. God, in his mercy, wants Nebuchadnezzar to know, don't build something that can't last. So what am I building that I'm asking God to outlast me? What are you building that you're asking God will outlast you? There's wonderful things we can build, but they are always in his spirit and in his name. Because he alone imparts life into the things that get built, not just in heaven, but from heaven to earth. The God of heaven wants to build on earth through you and me. And and he wants to build something that will last. And it is going to take faith. But if I am not building in God's kingdom, nothing I build will last. Not Babylon's gold, not Medo-Persian silver, not the bronze of the Greek empire, not the might of Rome with its feet of clay. Each will seem in its season to rule the world. Each will make demands of people that only a creator God has the right to make. And none will last because verse 44 says... As those kings reign, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And the only way that kingdom can persevere and, pres- and keep on going is by subverting and destroying every prideful human empire, kingdom, and dynasty that we build. So, Really, not doing well on sticking with my notes today, but uh, the God of heaven will set up his kingdom. Why? Because there's going to be a rock, not made by human hands. What is the rock? And the answer is always yeah. there we go. <laughs> Well, not always if I'm the preacher, but the point of it is, is that we are leaning forward. Now, we get to look back, but I want us to take a moment and look back through the words and the eyes of Jesus himself. You see, the book of Daniel was pretty much a bestseller, okay? They didn't have publishers and they had to write the scrolls, but this was being copied at a rate Compared to the other passages, I mean, other books of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel at the time of Jesus was like selling hand over fist, the best-selling scroll that you could get your hands on. People were, you know, they were blown away, for example, when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because they'd been counting down the kingdoms. And Babylon went, and Medo-Persia went. And then, you know, the Greek empire went and then the Romans came and then comes the rock. Then comes the rock. The rock that makes men stumble, a stone that makes them fall. But to those who love him, he becomes the cornerstone on which they build everything. Then comes the rock. and So people are listening and they're thinking, is this the rock? Is this the rock? Is this the one not made by human hands? Will he carry life in himself? Or will he touch things and they just die? Is there life or is there mortality in this kingdom? And so Jesus tells his friends, And his enemies. Matthew 24, Luke 13, a truckload of other places, that they will see the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 happen in their lifetime. God has come as king in Jesus. Jesus says this, uh, Mark 13:30. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. The kingdom has come. At his trial, when the high priest asked him, I charge you in the name of God, are you the Son of God, the Messiah? Jesus says, I am. And you will see, mirrored Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 2, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, coming on the clouds of heaven. We often think that's the second coming. Jesus says it's happening right now. The kingdom is coming in me. Now, theologically, this is monumentally important. And as a Christian interpreting the book of Daniel, you can't ignore these words of Jesus. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you could try a whole bunch of other constructions But you're missing the point if you don't understand that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. They will see the kingdom of God. They will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And it will be judgment day in Jesus' day. And we know that there was judgment day because Jesus went to the cross and faced your judgment and mine. For those who are in Christ Jesus, judgment day has already happened. My sin was placed on him, and so was yours. And if you believe in him, he will give you the right to everlasting life because your judgment is past tense. It's already happened. Now, gosh, this opens up a whole truckload of questions, Craig. Remember I said I'm wrapping up. Now I really am. Why are human kingdoms still flourishing? It looked like they were all just going to be crushed, smashed, and disappear like vapor. Well, I've got two little points. First is the telescopic effect of prophecy. So, take a moment and look at that picture. What do you see? You can see a little person over there. What do you think they see? They see a series of mountain ridges receding into the distance. And if you look closely, you can actually see that there's a few other little lines there that initially don't. And and you get a sense of the distance. But what happens, even in human eyesight, is that you can't see what you can't see. And so there's huge tracts of land. So this is what the geography kids get taught when they're reading contour maps, topographical maps, one of the questions is Are these places intervisible? In other words, can you see one from the other? And if they're intervisible, they're high up enough, but there's a whole lot of places, although they're on the same map, that can't see one another. Now, theologically, the prophets couldn't always see what they couldn't see. So as they look, it looks like when I'm looking at a timeline, as I see one event and then there's the next mountain and then there's the next mountain, I think I'm looking at the same thing, and I don't know that there's a huge valley between the two things that I'm looking at. And Peter even says, the prophets long to know what they will see. And so biblical prophecy is not wrong. It's just especially in the Old Testament, you have to be careful that you assume that they can see what we can see. It's just bringing things together that sometimes have a whole vast timeline between them. And then, secondly, is the tension of the kingdom as being truly and simultaneously both now and not yet. It's the only way you can explain the fact that Jesus says, in this generation, all these things will happen and still there'll be an element of stuff that hasn't happened. Now, this is a long story, but essentially, they thought of this, then that. And what we understand theologically now, in, and when we study time in the Bible, and the way time is used, that they describe ages. And so, you have this age and the age to come. And in the Old Testament, the prophetic expectation was simply sequence. You'll have, you know, this age, and then the, the rock will break Into the kingdoms, and then you'll have a completely new dispensation, and you're all done and dusted. The thing is is that they were expecting that rock to use the same military might and strategy that all other kingdoms had used. When this kingdom comes, blood will be shed, but it will not be the blood of his enemies. When this kingdom comes, the king will shed his own blood for his enemies. Love your enemies. And you'll be children of your father in heaven, is what this king said. So there has to be a way in which that bloodshed is averted so that this kingdom can be different. And that will take time. And so you don't just have this age, but then you have an improvement, a better kingdom. And then, in a sense, what you have is two ages overlapping. So you have this age, which is marked by the kingdoms and dominions of man, the inbreaking of Jesus, Jesus coming to earth, dying, judgment day, past tense, the enemy truly defeated, and then we still anticipate, and we are living, as it were, between the now and the not yet of kingdom inaugurated and kingdom consummated. I haven't got time to give you an illustration right now. But essentially, both are true. The kingdom has come now, and the kingdom is coming. Not yet. It doesn't mean that what Daniel saw is wrong. It just means that, remember, if he had thought about it, and if the people had thought about it, the rock has to grow. The rock has to grow. The rock didn't do it all in one go. There's this with human empire but then the rock has to grow and in Daniel 7 we discover that it grows through the people who belong to the son of man that's kingdom that's kingdom is that helpful gosh skip page skip page and say amen I think I've got to leave it there okay I've got some really cool illustrations maybe I'll come back next week Maybe I should just say this. We don't just have an amazing miracle story, we have the historical record to back it up as well. I mean, it's not just crazy enough that he got it right, it's crazy enough that that's what actually happened over a period of 300, 400 years. How much more do you need to convince you that you can trust the God of the Bible? Daniel were here, he'd look you as deeply as he could into your eyes and he would say, There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven and he loves you. He's the revealer of mysteries. And no, we don't understand everything, but he is growing a kingdom that has not. Derived from human power, human money, human military, human ingenuity, human technology. It's energized by the Spirit of God Himself. And the thing we have to do is break our alignment to the pride that wants to build our own kingdoms and receive Him as King. This king whose body was broken and whose blood was poured out for us so that his kingdom would be different from all other kingdoms. You see, the power behind his kingdom is his broken body, judged for sin, for you and for me. Other kingdoms have many mangled and broken bodies. This kingdom stands alone in that our king willingly was broken for us. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. This is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. We come to our Lord's table precisely because his kingdom is so different.